0: Happy Resurrection Sunday. John 2 this morning, John 2:13 through 22. Now let's pray. Our Father, we would approach you, we would come into your presence, uh, for you are light and life and glory. But you are also holy and just. And the most terrifying truth is that you are good. For we are not. How can pure light not displace all darkness? And yet we do come. We come with boldness and confidence. Because we have one who lives to intercede for us. He shares our own flesh and blood. He sits at your right hand. And we come through him, believing on his word and claiming his name. For his name's sake, bless the reading and the preaching of your scriptures to the faith of your elect. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. John 2, uh, 13 through 22. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Amen. It's God's word. How do you connect with God? If you were to ask somebody on the street that question, uh, what what sort of answers would you hear in reply? Some people might say, well, I don't. (laughs) Others may say, I am God, and you are God too, and so is everything else. Others might say, I connect with God at, at Mass or Synagogue. Uh, Or or I feel closest to God when I'm doing good things for others. Or in our part of the world, you're likely to hear, I connect with God through creation. This idea is popular uh, uh, in, in music. You hear it in country music. One artist who I listen to sometimes wrote, Ever since I heard the howling wind, I didn't need to go where the Bible went. This idea that we find God in creation. How do we connect with God? Christians are—we're funny about holidays. Uh, Christian co- holidays have also their cultural holidays—and and so during Christmas, you'll hear hear the refrain, well, "Jesus is the reason for the season." Uh, at Easter time, there's a general frustration I think among Christians with the, the bunnies and the eggs and. Um, all the the excess and consumerism without content and we know Easter is supposed to be the time we think about the resurrection of Jesus but why 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 is it the time we think about the resurrection of Jesus why does that matter why does it matter to you We'll look at one of many answers to the question, why does the resurrection matter, this morning. What we learn from this passage is that in all the proposed, the multitude of proposed means to connect with God, there is only one true place, or person rather, by whom we connect with God. That is the temple What we gather from Jesus is that the temple is no longer a physical, architectural, geographical space, but it is a person. It is Jesus. His body is the place where we meet with God, where where God condescends to, to meet with man. Christ and Christ alone is the place and the person we must come if we're going to meet with God, if we're going to connect with God. So the resurrection matters because without it, the supposed temple of the living God uh, is a rotted corpse and, and now is dust and gone. So if there was no resurrection, we might as well, we should give up on communing with God or we should find a different way. Without the resurrection, we need, we need to give up on this whole Christianity thing, this, this Jesus thing. And he he is indeed the only source of true communion with God. So the primary focus of our study will, will uh, be in verses 18 through 22. But before we look at Jesus' comments about the resurrection in the temple, we should just take a moment to look at the event that, that precipitated these comments and the cleansing of the temple. So I'll just read that little bit of the story once again. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, Zeal for your house will consume you. It's a quote from Psalm 63, or 69, rather, 69.9. And the disciples saw in Jesus the same zeal that David had for the house of God, for the temple of the Lord. I have this image of Jesus Calmly, like sitting on a rock, manufacturing a weapon <laughs> a whip at some point this this is a premeditated thing he He thought about this. Galilee, it was lowland, and and like Michael said, Passover was a a time when people came from all over the place, and and especially the lowlands came up to Zion, to Jerusalem, to worship at Passover. So Jesus participated in this with his disciples. They went up to Jerusalem, um, to the temple. And, and the people, when they came, there was a temple tax of a half a shekel required, and they would bring their animals for their offerings. And, and of course, these animals had to be perfect without blemish. And there's actually an official qualified examiner of these animals. I think, uh, Mum, Mumche is the best, my best attempt at the pronunciation. This was a man, a person's job. So on the one hand, you can see the value of having animal markets in the area for this time. So travelers wouldn't have to bring their own animals um, from from who knows how far away. On the other hand, you could see how this could be abused. And perhaps a picky uh, or biased official uh, scorer of animals, sacrificial animals, maybe his friend was the one selling the doves and the oxen. And so we can see how these sort of pre-approved animals being sold in the courts of the temple would be convenient, but also would be a great way to take advantage of people. Also, the money changers, also this is a practical thing. It served a practical purpose. As people brought larger coinage or foreign coinage, it had to be exchanged. They might You don't want to bring a big sack of pennies with you on a trip. You you want to bring a coin, perhaps a, a higher denomination, and it could be exchanged. Or if your money was from somewhere else, it needed to be exchanged. And so these people would do that service for you, but they would also skim a little or a lot off the transaction. And the temple tax was a half a shekel. And it's a funny, according to one article I read, they required a specific coin. Uh, and these coins had pagan symbols on them, so they weren't accepted, was the, the line. But the coin they were accepting at the time, apparently, was a coin from Tyre. With this image of a god named Melkart, a Phoenician deity equivalent to Baal. <laughs> so you can see the hypocrisy in all of this. You can see why Jesus was angry. Uh, not only are they taking advantage of people, but they're doing it in the temple. Wrong action, wrong place. So he fashions this whip, he, he zealously and violently drives them out. Now, You care to guess who these people were that were in the temple setting up? In the historical literature, these booths in the temple were called the Bazaars of Annas. Annas the high priest. One article quotes the historian Josephus saying, Annas was a great hoarder of money. So, Jesus, this is like picking a fight with the mob. It's no wonder that at Jesus' trial, these people bring this up again. Three years later, they remember this. He's the guy who came and disrupted their economy. They accuse him in Matthew um, of bringing up this whole story of, he said he would tear down the temple and raise it up in three days. And then when he's on the cross, they mock him and they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save your life. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So just theorizing here, I think a lot of the people who had it out for Jesus were a lot of these same people who had booths that day in the temple. They were out to get him. This is the day, this is the beginning of his ministry. He had the the wedding feast at Cana, and then he went up and drove these people out. <laughs> they, they were out to get him from then on. So Jesus was challenging the Jewish authority of the time, Annas the high priest, Not only that, but he was acting with a prophetic kind of authority. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Which kind of brings us to the main focus of our sermon this morning in verse 18. And the very natural question is, on whose authority do you do these things? Uh, Any logical person would have to ask that question. And the only real answer is it would have had to been The Messiah, like the only valid person to have done that thing had to have been the Messiah. So I always, I just kind of wonder like why they didn't kill him on the spot or or arrest him on the spot. And I I was just speculating, but perhaps they saw something in him, like a potential in him. He's the kind of person they wanted, someone who was zealous, who would take charge and rise up and use force. They were waiting for someone like that to be their messianic king, to, to cast off the Roman yoke. That's just a speculation, but but they ask him, why do you, what, what sign do you show us for these things? The Jews are ones who always want a sign. Give us a sign. Thus far in Jesus' ministry, uh, he was attested to by John the Baptist voice crying in the wilderness he was attested to by the father at his baptism and the Holy Spirit and then he turned water into wine at Cana and they're still saying give us a sign no matter how many signs he did they were not satisfied enough to to bend the knee to this one who had disrupted their enterprise now, Jesus' answer here to them is this classic Jesus. It's so precise and so full of meaning and yet so vague and confusing. It's cryptic. So verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now the response in verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days. Now this is Herod's temple, the second temple. Uh, throughout Old Testament history, God has met with man. He's communed with man. Before sin in the garden, he, he communed with man in the garden directly. Which the garden itself, many point out, is the, the temple in itself of of some shape or form but in the wilderness god gave them the instructions for the tabernacle this meeting place this tent of meeting and then solomon built the first temple in jerusalem and then the first temple was destroyed by nebuchadnezzar when they came and carried the people off to exile Then after the exile, they returned and under Zerubbabel, they began to build the second temple, which was apparently a more modest temple. The the few old folks who were left, who remembered the first one, were weeping at how modest the second temple was. But in 20 B.C., Herod began a massive overhaul and beautification project. Uh, And because it was interesting, because only priests could enter the temple, he hired a thousand priests to be masons and carpenters on this temple. So the the main part of the project was completed pretty quickly but it, it was an ongoing thing for over 80 years. And so at this point when they said it's taken 46 years that's it's, so far it's taken 46 years and you're going to build it rebuild it in in 3 days. Jesus interestingly enough was a carpenter. By trade, carpenter, the word more likely meaning stonemason. But even he, how could he do that in three days? Clearly, either he's claiming divine power, or he's just a nut. Now, what is the purpose of the temple? I thought of five sort of overlapping categories of the purpose of the temple... Uh, first of all, it's the place of the presence of God. Uh, the tabernacle was the place where the glory of God was made known to the people of God. It's the place of meeting. And likewise, the first temple was the house of God. It's not as though God could be contained in a building, but but he's... When the temple is visible and tangible and present, that's a sign that he is with his covenant people. His presence is being revealed. The second thing is it's a place of worship. The temple is a place of worship. The tabernacle and the temple were places of worship where the people of God came to worship the living God. And then thirdly, it's the place of assembly. It's the place where the church or the people of God came to assemble to worship the living God. Fourthly, it's a destination. This is this whole idea that we see at Passover. People come from all over the place to the temple to worship God. It's, we see these these images in the Old Testament of even Gentiles streaming into Zion, streaming into Jerusalem. It's a destination. And then fifth, it's a place of Mediation. The, the presence of God is mediated at the temple. You, you bring your worship and sacrifices for the priests to offer to God. And mediation is by God's grace. If we were to encounter God directly, we would be incinerated in an instant. So you can understand why Jesus' actions and his claims infuriated these people. The temple was highly revered and esteemed in the first century. You can also understand Jesus' anger. For Jesus, this is his father's house. It's an expression of the covenant promise of God that he will be with his people. And these people are abusing it and making a mockery of it and turning it into a market and a corrupt market. So if it is the Father's house, if it is the expression of of God's covenant that he'll be with his people, why do we not have the temple anymore? Well, we do. We do. Jesus' response is, is essentially, I am the temple. What right do you have, Jesus, to come into the temple and do these things? I am the temple. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. It's cryptic, but it's powerful. He's talking about, John tells us, he's talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple. His body is the temple. Which is where Christmas meets Easter. Emmanuel is a word we, we often think of at Christmas time. God with us. Tem- the temple has the same idea God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus is God with us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt, that is, tabernacled among us. In Matthew 12, verse 6, he said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. So the temple, the physical, architectural temple, is no more. And Jesus is the temple We no longer have any need for for an architectural, geographically bound place to go to worship, to connect with God. There's no need to go to a temple to offer sacrifices through a priest. We come to Jesus. He said, no one can come to the Father but through me. He's the mediator. He's the temple, the place we go to meet God. So those five elements of the temple that I mentioned before, Jesus replaces all of them. Uh, first of all, He is the presence of God. Colossians 2 verse 9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Secondly, He is the place of worship, if you will. The famous story of the woman at the well in John 4. He says in John four twenty through 26 Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. This is the woman at the well at this point. Worshipped on this mountain. That is Mount Gerizim. But you say that it is in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, will he tell us all things? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. See see that how the categories are changed from a physical location, not Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, but spirit and in truth. And he's the Christ. Also, thirdly, he's the locus of the assembly. People before came to the temple. Now we come to Jesus. John 6:37. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He's been given as the head of the church. The Colossians says it, it nourishes and knits together the body. Fourthly, he is the destination. Again, we have that picture in the Old Testament in the prophets of people of the nations streaming into Zion, to, to Jerusalem, to the temple. And then Hebrews twelve twenty two, But you have come to Mount Zion. Already, if you believe in Christ, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering. And then fifth, as the temple was the, the mediation, the place of mediation, he is the mediator. First Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So John, again, he says he was speaking about the temple of his body. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ is the temple of the living God. Have you ever wondered why we spend time each week reading the ancient creeds? That's it. They can at times feel a bit granular perhaps. Perhaps at times we wonder, what's the point of reading words like this, like, like, like the like definition of Chalcedon. One in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in substance. Not as part or separated into two persons, but one in the same Son, and only begotten God, the wor- Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you have to pay attention to that. <laughs> it feels a bit granular, and you sometimes we wonder, why, how is that worship? Uh, Some think I don't need to get into the nitty gritty details. I just love Jesus and that he'll take care of the rest. But there's a reason why our forefathers were so careful about defining what the Bible says about the nature of Jesus. And it's essential to our worship. In short, if Jesus was not a man. There's no temple. If Jesus was not God, there's no temple. If Jesus is not fully God and fully man, there's no true worship of God. It's immensely practical. For one example, one heresy the early church dealt with was the sort of Gnostic idea of Docetism, which said that Jesus' body was not a real body. It was a phantom body. If the body of Jesus was only a phantom... What do we make of the resurrection? What do we make of John's claim here? That Jesus thinks his body is the temple of the living God. Our bodies, ours included, are subject to death, to decay. So that the body of Jesus is the temple of God. What happens when he dies? And that is of course the point the point of the passage, the point of resurrection Sunday. do you do you under do you have a grasp of the, the the idea that Jesus Christ is still a human being in a body in heaven that that right now a human being is with the Father in heaven. The someone who shares our DNA, someone who shares common ancestry with us, is in heaven with the Father. I I reflect on that reality more and more. um, And and it's increasingly become a central feature of of my practical theology or, or the truths by which I live my life. For a bunch of reasons. But one most pertinent to this sermon is that he continues even now to be Emmanuel, to be God with us. Even as he's in heaven. His body is still the temple of God. I still come to the Father through the man, Jesus Christ. He persists as my human mediator. Both sacrifice and sacrificer. Or as the hymn more beautifully puts it, Christ the victim, Christ the priest. He he continues eternally to be the embodiment of, literally, of the covenant. If, if Jesus ascended into heaven and shucked his body like he was an ear of corn, or like, you know the, the alien, how he takes up habitation in the guy's body in, in Men in Black, like if, that, if it was like that, or, or worse, if he died and his body was rotting away in the grave, None of this ongoing work of Jesus, the Mediator, would be true. It wouldn't be worth an ounce. Neither would the cross. Which is why Paul writes those famous words to the Corinthians church, Corinthian church in, in 1 Corinthians 15. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So we have in the resurrection, the resurrection of the body of Jesus, an eternal living temple. Tear, tear it down, he says, but in three days it will be raised again. And it was the temple of the body of Jesus was raised again. He submitted himself to the grave. And then he who has the authority to lay down his own life and take it up again, raised the temple He rebuilt the temple. He raised himself with the other members of the Trinity from the dead. He rebuilt the temple. And Jesus didn't seem to mind in the least if people thought he was weird or insane. He didn't seem to care. I mean, who would say something like that in response to this accusation? He just drove these people out and they said, "What right do you have to do this? Give us a sign, and he, this is what he says. Tear the temple down and I'll raise it up. And he does not care if people thinks he's nuts. John said that even for the disciples, it finally clicked at the resurrection. Then they were able to put two and two together, even for them. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's interesting to me that that John adds scripture here. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had said. This plan, the plan of god that that god would become man that he would take on a human body die spend three days in the grave rise to be the new eternal living temple of god that whole plan was not a spur-of-the-moment plan it's recorded in the old testament scriptures and they bring it to mind at the resurrection john says we covered it actually last week in Acts, when Peter quoted in his sermon from Psalm 16, Psalm 16, verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. So the resurrection was foretold long before it ever happened. So i call us this morning, like the disciples, to believe, to believe the Scriptures. To believe the words that Jesus said. And not, not just to hear them, but to believe them. To take them to heart. To, to make them a part of our day to day. So that among all those temptations, among all those supposed alternate means to approach the living God, we'll all, only look to, to Jesus, the living temple, for access to God. I want to close with, with Revelation 21, uh, 9 through 22, uh, a portion of that actually, but beginning in Revelation 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Then verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. I want you to see the the connection here in verse 9 and 10. I will show you the bride of the Lamb. Who's that? The church. What does he show him? The city, the new Jerusalem. One and the same. Just as Hebrews said, you've come to Zion. You've come to the city Jerusalem. We're in Christ. We're in the heavenly city. And the temple in that city is Jesus, the Lamb. So how do we connect with God? We come to God through the one temple, the one mediator, the the one resurrected body, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.